0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking... Should today's world leaders be hawks or doves? Three men, Donald Trump, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, are jostling for pole position on the world stage. But how do their different pasts prepare today's global leaders to make the decisions that determine whether we have war or peace? Donald Trump is a businessman who doesn't read history books and might just negotiate peace with North Korea. Vladimir Putin, who hails from the KGB, uses historical concepts like the essential difference of Russia from the West to underline his claim to power. And Xi Jinping is a career politician who seeks the old mantle of President Mao, China's presidency for life. Where does a world order that often seems to defy categories of the Cold War or its aftermath leave the quest for grand strategy? John Lewis Gaddis has taught strategy at Yale University for almost 20 years. He's also a professor of history, winner of both a Pulitzer Prize for Biography and the National Humanities Medal. His many books, among them The Long Peace and, we now know, Revisit the Cold War. But his new work takes a longer and a broader view. On Grand Strategy looks back at the great decision makers of the last 2,000 or so years, from Sun Tzu to Henry Kissinger, from Queen Elizabeth I to Abraham Lincoln. He joins me on the line now. John Lewis Gaddis, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thank you so much, Anne. It's good to be here.
1: So, first of all, could you nail down your definition of what grand strategy is and thus how it might just differ from any other strategy?
0: Well, I think it's pretty simple, really. Uh, Grand strategy is a reflection of a tragic fact of life, it seems to me. And that is that our aspirations are potentially infinite, what we hope for, but our capabilities are always finite, what we can actually achieve. And so it seems to me that grand strategy is what bridges that gap. It's how we bring our aspirations down to earth to make them fit our capabilities.
1: We talk a lot about good leadership and the sense perhaps that there's a bit of a dearth of it in the world today, at least perhaps from a a liberal perspective. We run something here at The Economist this year called Open Future, looking at how do we get the best out of the the values that we think have have guided the world well in the past. And yet you seem to suggest that good leadership isn't necessarily the same as good grand strategy. Leaders can have
0: good strategies, uh, intelligent, wise strategies. Leaders can also have extraordinarily stupid strategies, and I tried to talk about both. My definition of a stupid strategy would be one which does not balance aspirations uh, against limited capabilities, which uh, obscures that relationship. I also use in the book Isaiah Berlin's favorite metaphor of foxes and hedgehogs, the fox knowing many things, the hedgehog knowing one big thing, and I think there is uh, considerable evidence, historically. For the proposition that those leaders who were hedgehogs who operated within one big intellectual system, whatever it was, did less well than the uh, leaders who were foxes and were open to several different kinds of uh, intellectual perspectives.
1: I'm interested in the leaders that you you chose to, to make your case about. If you had to plot a line of grand strategy throughout history and I gave you three or four characters, who would you choose?
0: Well, I would certainly choose, um, as a historian, uh, Thucydides. uh, I actually had an experience with this, which I think reflects his relevance. One of my first teaching jobs was at the U.S. Naval War College just at the end of the Vietnam War. And none of the students wanted to talk about it because they had uh, themselves been so painfully involved in it. So, the late Stansfield Turner, who was the president of the War College at that point decided we would approach the Vietnam War by way of the Peloponnesian War. We would study why the Athenians, who were a a naval power, chose to send a land army to Sicily meeting absolute military disaster at a time when the Spartans were right outside their own city gates. How could they do this? What were they thinking? That's what we went through. Those were the discussions we had. And when we came to that part, what were they thinking? Immediately, my students wanted to know, why did the United States, uh, a naval and air power, send a land army to Southeast Asia? What were they thinking, particularly when there was a Soviet satellite 90 miles off our shore in the 1960s? So by comparison. We were able to use that ancient war as a way of opening up a discussion on a very recent and painful war.
1: And what would that kind of application look like now? Where would it leave a war? Let's take the Iraq War, where the assumption is that you do have more military power than your opponent, but in fact, it's in a, it's sort of asymmetric, isn't it? Because the military power is was not the the thing in the end that made the Iraq War difficult or made it not achieve I- its aims.
0: Well, I think there were two problems with the Iraq War, which also have ancient uh, roots. One was bad intelligence. We believed Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He did not. So how did we make that mistake? And then the second was failing to prepare for the consequences of victory. That is, once we'd won, what were we going to do? And we actually have a name for that in grand strategy. It's called the dog and car syndrome. Uh, The premise is that dogs uh, love to chase cars, but they never quite know what to do with one when they catch it. And that was our problem in Iraq. It's not a completely unprecedented problem. Uh, It's what faced Napoleon when he marched to Moscow in 1812. It's what faced Xerxes when he marched through Greece and captured Athens uh, in uh, the period of of the Persian Wars. So, again, there are common threads that recur, common mistakes made across time and space.
1: I noticed that you you don't deal directly with the consequences of, of having Donald Trump in the White House. And in some ways, he seems to sort of defy categorisation. He's had powerful military men around him, but he's also got rid of powerful military military men, hand over fist, uh, recently H.R. McMaster, of course, who's left his team. Does that interfere with any broader idea of strategy if you simply have the ultimate power wielder in the free world being oh, such a random guy?
0: Well, first of all, I very honestly did not have Trump in mind when I was writing this book because uh, I started writing the book long before Trump came on the horizon and I was teaching the subject uh, long before that as well. I think uh, there are some ways though in which you can apply some of the lessons of um, grand strategy even in this very unusual situation that we face now. One of the things that strikes me about Trump's style is the complete unpredictability of it. He loves to keep everyone else on edge. And there are precedents for that kind of behavior, maybe not to such an extreme as Trump has carried it. But if you were to go back and look at the comments of some of Franklin Roosevelt's uh, closest advisors uh, during World War II, they would say the precedent is completely unpredictable. The president tells different people different things. There's no order to this. It's complete chaos. And yet uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, came across in the end with a very, very an extraordinarily successful grand strategy. It sounds for like are giving or. Donald
1: Trump the benefit of the doubt. Everyone knows that Roosevelt was a great juggler. <laughs> but is that really, is that a parallel that works out, do you think, in the Trump era? Uh,
0: no, I'm not sure. We haven't come to the end of it yet. Historians should always be very cautious about making these kinds of predictions. All I'm saying, is that we do have previous examples of policymakers, makers, presidents and otherwise, who function by keeping their subordinates off balance.
1: Well, then let's look at that parallel or that comparison, I should say, of your capabilities and aspirations and say, which are the aspirations that America should now have as a great power, conflicts it can deal with in the world, or where are those that it doesn't?
0: I think the big debate is the one that has figured in American foreign policy for half a century or more. What is the fundamental national interest in the world? Is it to try to create some kind of ideological uniformity? That is democracy promotion, try to break down the uh, barriers that have existed and pursue this idea of globalization, market economies, democratic politics, and so on. And that was a very popular idea at the end of the Cold War. The other approach would be the balance of power approach, which has even deeper roots and which acknowledges that great nations are never going to be the same as each other. They're always going to have different internal forms of government. And what you seek is a certain amount of stability in their external behavior, the creation of an international order, but not a consistent ideological uniformity. That has been the big debate, and I think the, the debate still goes on today for sure.
1: Uh, and do you, which side do you think is winning that debate? I'm Obviously, I'm thinking that you're on the Bismarck Kissinger line there <laughs> okay. with your sort of 19th century balance of <laughs> – a uh, 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 power, uh, anybody remembers that from uh, from from their school or, or, or seminars, and you could sort of call it the liberal interventionist approach which can end up with you perhaps blundering into things when you get out of your depth. W- what's your temperament?
0: Well, my sense right now is that the balance of power approach definitely is more relevant because the democratic world that we were expecting, some very serious people uh, were uh, anticipating at the end of the Cold War has not happened, that's really quite clear. The return of authoritarian politics uh, at the international uh, level uh, among the great powers is the single most striking development of the last decade, it seems to me. Given that fact, then the pursuit, the continued pursuit of democracy promotion in this kind of environment. It seems to me is unrealistic, and uh, this has already been acknowledged by the Trump administration. To a considerable extent, it was acknowledged by the Obama administration also. So paradoxically, the last uh, enthusiast for uh, 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 spreading democracy was George W. Bush.
1: But my challenge to you on that would be that it can be a, a way to kind of dress up a cynicism about the world that says you, know, you don't necessarily have to do very much to support in China or those at the sharp end of Vladimir Putin's autocracy in Russia, you just have to have you know this sort of percentage way of divvying up the world and divvying up interests and that you kind of end up perhaps deepening the, the hold of authoritarians on their country.
0: Well, since when were politics, not cynical, it seems to me the whole nature of politics involves uh, trade-offs, sometimes painful trade-offs. This is another point that um, I talk about in the book, drawing on Isaiah Berlin, the fact that you cannot have all good things at the same time and you always have to make compromises at one point or another. Some people would call that cynicism, I would call it realism. But there is a a fussy line between the two for sure. And I also know that not to acknowledge this reality leads to idealism, which at the same time can lead to complete um, uh, misjudgments of real situations.
1: Of course, you can misjudge the balance of power as well, can't you?
0: Of course you can. You can misjudge anything. (laughs) <laughs> if you put your mind to it. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, if you work hard, if you work work hard on... enough at it, you can no, I'm just you can pushing you to whether,
1: w- whether the balance of power is a stable and operating sort of set of principles uh, uh, no, as you make it sound. A,
0: no, it's, it's never completely stable. It always is uh, undergoing disruption. It always requires some level of international cooperation to maintain it. But in situations like the present, it may offer greater prospects for stability and for predictability in international relations than a crusading effort on the part of one great power to promote its own system across the world, which we were quite uh, interested in doing at the end of of the Cold War and, of course, at the beginning of the Cold War, the Soviet Union purported to want to do something like that too, something about proletarians in all countries unite, uh, making the world safe for communism. Both, I think, were unrealistic uh, possibilities.
1: I think it's not quite 50 years ago since Henry Kissinger envisaged America perhaps pivoting more towards Russia to check the growing power of China. Do you think that's what's effectively happening under this administration?
0: I don't know that it's that sophisticated. (laughs) I have no idea whether Trump has... uh, secretly read and absorbed Henry Kissinger. I know he's met with Kissinger. I rather doubt that he has this level of analysis. And it may be, and many people think that there are certain uh, hidden reasons for his uh, willingness to give Putin the benefit of of the doubt. No one knows for sure. But to the idea that somehow improvement in relations with Russia could balance China, I think that uh, Trump coming out of the corporate world, coming out of the world of um, business, would inherently uh, understand balance of power politics and would not have had to read Kissinger to come to that understanding.
1: And what do you make of the replacement of H.R. McMaster with John Bolton as national security advisor? On the face of it, you know, to rather... Different types. I mean, uh, neither of them are, not, are a definition of hawks and doves, but John Bolton definitely the more hawkish. Is that, to your mind, more of a danger?
0: It's hard to tell at this point because, uh, first of all, McMaster had uh, been saying for months that he was on his way out and that he wanted to be on his way out. You know, so this was not something that happened against his uh, wishes. Uh, John Bolton certainly has the reputation. Yes for being a super hawk. That's been cultivated over a very long period of time. But to what extent, in a position of power, he continues to hold that view is, I think, up for grabs. People who've taken such positions publicly as advocates, uh, working for think tanks, for example, or um, publishing in journals do not always uh, reflect those positions when they come into positions of policy responsibility. We will see this tested very quickly on North Korea because Bolton, more than anyone else, has come close to calling for preventive military action against North Korea. But Trump, more than anyone else, is the advocate at the moment of actually using personal diplomacy with North Korea. So we'll see how that works out.
1: We might also see it on the Iran deal too. Do you think stick or twist on the Iran deal?
0: It's a different configuration on that question, for sure. But I think that there still could be the possibility for some kind of uh, deal there too, yes. Uh,
1: where do you fit Germany, Merkel's Germany, for want of a better shorthand, in, into your picture? Because I'm very fascinated reading it, as someone who covered Germany for a lot of years, that it, it appears actually not very much. We talk obviously we talk a lot about Bismarck, but you don't really talk about where Germany, which I think The Economist has called the reluctant hegemon, fits into the global security order. Is that because you kind of think it ducks its duties or just isn't that interesting? <laughs> well,
0: I, don't, I, I don't mean to say that, say that it ducks its duties. I, I think a lot of people were happy to have it ducking its duties after World War II. But the point is that Germany has chosen to be a quiet power partly because it was uh, under the American security umbrella, partly because it sees itself as the driving force in the European economic uh, community, partly from simply learning painful lessons from the past. It's becoming increasingly difficult for Germany to remain quiet because of the pressures that are being put on it. So that may have to change. But I do think it still is a reluctant change on the part of the Germans, one that they are not completely comfortable with.
1: I've got to throw in a confusing animal metaphor because it is our question on the show today. Should today's world leaders be hawks or doves?
0: I find that an oversimplified question. Uh, in the first That's place, why we asked Anna. it. Yes. Uh, hawks and doves tend to reduce things, uh, first of all, just to a military dimension military versus diplomacy. I think that's too simple. You need both in grand strategy. There are times when it pays to be hawkish. There are times when it pays to be dovish. Trump himself is being both hawkish and dovish at the same time, and with regard to Russia and with regard to um, North Korea, for sure. And people say that's chaos, but at the same time, it could be common sense. So um, I think we should get away from the old hawk Of dichotomy, which came out of the Vietnam War, and simply go back to a far more ancient dichotomy, which is the fox-hedgehog distinction, which really goes back to the ancient Greeks. I'm more comfortable with that.
1: (laughs) That's your particular choice on on animal farm. So let's take your strategic grand sweep and ask you to make a prediction, which is going to cause us the the biggest strategic headaches in dealing with Russia or China?
0: Mm. I um, suspect China for a couple of reasons. First of all, Russia is the more fragile state uh, by far. Russia is uh, so heavily dependent on oil as the source of its strength. It's got a declining population. It's uh, very much an empty country, uh, much of it, and it has no orderly succession plans or or mechanisms uh, for sure. The very culture of Russia, it seems to me, is less resilient than that of China.
1: That doesn't necessarily make it less dangerous,
0: huh? um, Not necessarily, but my prediction would be that over the long run, it will be China that poses the larger strategic dilemmas for us, simply because they will be so much more effective as an economic challenger, competing with us for economic influence in the rest of the world, something Russia has no capability of doing. So you can look at the uh, Chinese presence in Africa, for example, today and see something going on that the Russians have no capability of doing. Also, China as a technological center of innovation, China as a potential military power with very impressive applications of technology, not least artificial intelligence, for military purposes. I think that's apt to be the, the larger dilemma for us over the next 25 years or so.
1: And one thing I will ask you, is particularly thinking about your Hedgehog and, and Fox, and of course, that great Isaiah Berlin essay, as you point out, what he really got out of it was more applicable to Tolstoy than anything else. So should we really be looking to literature, perhaps even more than to history, to learn about strategy?
0: Well, that's interesting, because that essay was indeed about Tolstoy and... Berlin himself uh, did not believe that you had to choose between being a fox and a hedgehog. The whole thing started out with him as a party joke at Oxford in 1939. And uh, he admitted that shortly before he died that there are times when the intelligent leader needs to be a hedgehog and there are times when you need to be a fox. And the real issue is deciding when to be which, and that's really what the subject of the book is about, how leaders chose when to be which. My interest in Tolstoy came from simply admiring him, assigning his novels uh, in class, and then suddenly finding how many parallels there were in war and peace. With Clausewitz's great book on war, both of which in, from different ways dealt with the Napoleonic invasion of Russia in 1812, but they are rarely set side by side and compared to each other. A strategy needs to be studied across time and space, but also scale, the relationship of small things to big things. And sometimes the only way you can document scale is by way of dramatization or fiction, and uh, Tolstoy is the master of that.
1: John Lewis-Gaddis, thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much.
1: But what do you think? Should our leaders have paid more attention in history class or spent more time with their novels? How might their policies be different if they had? Go to www.economist.com to join our debate. We're on email radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag OpenFuture. Do get involved and please don't forget to rate us on your podcast app. It really helps us. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.